Hello and welcome to InsureTech Insider episode 120. I'm John Bean. In today's episode, we're going to talk about culture and insurance. Now, culture is a very wide topic and can cover a variety of different lenses. The culture of innovation, the move towards a digital culture, social culture, which is a topic that we've covered here on the podcast quite a lot, especially lately with our recent ESG podcast and many more cultural lenses. Cultural insurance has gotten its fair share of bad rep and for good reason recently with press reports, but it might not all be doom and gloom, with lots of good work happening across the industry. So join us as we try and figure out what is currently going on and how we can build a transformative and inclusive future. As always, I'm not alone, but joined by a panel of amazing guests. First up, I'm joined by my co-host, Nigel Walsh, Managing Director of Insurance at Google. How are you today, Nigel? I'm very well, thank you. I am enjoying being called living in a broom cupboard, but let's leave that to another episode. Or Gordon the Gopher. <laughs> and back in New York, I see. Uh, how is the weather? I'll tell you what, here in the UK is an absolute belter. It is roasting, and my desire to live and work 30 minutes from the office was a great idea, apart from when it's 36 degrees heat. So I've got to figure that out. There's lots of people walking around in shorts and t-shirts. I'm just not sure Google's ready to see my legs just yet. <laughs> we are also joined by Lou Smith, Chair of the Board of Innovate Finance. How are you doing today, Lou? And could you give our listeners a little bit of information about yourself, your history and Innovate Finance, please? Sure. And hi, everyone. Um, I wish I was in 36 or anything 30 degree heat. I live in Edinburgh, so uh, it's proper summer weather today. We've hit 21, so it's beautiful <laughs> here. It's a crazy. So, uh, Lou Smith, yeah, I have the privilege of being chair of the board for Innovate Finance, uh, which is obviously the, the body that represents the and is the voice of fintech. I always think fintech is a funny word to use these days because I think financial services innovation is much broader. Um, I've spent, and I realise now I have to round up, which is actually scary me, but I've actually spent the last nearly 30 years, nearly is a really important word here, uh, of, uh, of my life in financial services, doing stuff that we didn't call innovation or digital when I started. And I've been largely retail banks. And in the last few years, I've been in the insurance market, working with Lloyds of London as their first chief digital officer and actually more recently with WTW looking at digital trading. So I've seen it on both the retail bank side, the uh, the startup and scale-up community and also in the insurance side. Well, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on with that wealth of experience, Lou. Thank you. Uh, and lastly, and not least, we also have Alex Bond, founder of FinPro and host of the Leadership and Insurance Podcasts. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today, Alex? And could you give our listeners a little bit of information about yourself and everything you do? Thank you. Yeah, I'm very well. A um, bit like yourself roasting, and I, and I didn't dress for the occasion. You, you, you upset me when you turned up with shorts on because I thought I've really misjudged this because it's very warm. Um, but uh, we can't moan about that in the, the UK. Um, so I am... The founder of FinPro. FinPro is an insurtech-specific executive recruitment business. Um, I've been in the industry for 15 years. Um, I used to work for RSA uh, straight from university, and then I moved into the recruitment sector, and I've always focused on the insurance industry. Um, in the last three years, the business has pivoted to be purely insurtech. So we work with um, startup and scale-up businesses, uh, predominantly in the UK and in the USA. Um, and yeah, we provide this sort of traditional executive recruitment in that insurtech environment. So um, it's very much focused on innovation. Um, and that can be anything from uh, digital insurers through to SaaS plays in the insurance market. 
And um, yeah, the podcast, which is, a, you know, I'd get in trouble with my marketing manager if I don't promote that. So it's a leadership and insurance podcast. It's a weekly podcast where we tackle um, innovation in the insurance. And we take the broadest view of that we can. And whether that's innovative styles of leadership, um, you know, we've had conversations about um, the impact of remote working on the insurance industry through to talking to C-suite execs from InsureTechs, which is probably the most common thing we do. Oh, well, thank you very much. I, and I think it'll be give a fascinating view to also have the, the recruitment side of things. Uh, so thank you very much for joining us. Well, let's get started and let's get on with the show. So I guess, first of all, where are we now? So I'm going to start with you, Lou, because I am fascinated as an outsider coming into insurance from banking and your other previous roles. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience coming into insurance and were there any big cultural differences? I, I mean, it's a huge question. To, to to start off with, um, uh, so thanks. Uh, I think, I mean, yeah. But I also think it's easy to look at insurance and go, it's however many years behind retail banks. And I hear this all the time. By the way, I hear, are we thirty years behind? Are we ten years behind? Are we fifteen years behind? Or something else? And it's actually the wrong conversation because. However many years insurance is or isn't behind, it's not going to take that long to catch up. And I'm seeing some incredible things in insurance. So let me start there. Um, there are differences, but I don't think and things have happened and things have moved forward. And, you know, undoubtedly we'll get into some of this. And if I look across the broader financial services, I think there are things that just give me hope. Uh, and I don't know whether that's good or bad when I was reflecting on this podcast. So if I look at Julia Hoggart, uh, CEO of the London Stock Exchange, she just gives me hope um, because I actually, and it isn't just because she's a female leader, she's an incredible leader. And she actually is trying to represent and mirror the full spectrum of customers and users of the market and actually ensure that she stays relevant and fit for a purpose of a market that's moving. And I think when we think about culture, we have to think about it in its broadest and deepest sense and think about it in a way of do the teams that we lead and do the people that we lead fully represent the customers and people that we serve? Because if it doesn't, then somebody's left out of the room and that can't be right. So when you say to me, is it different? Yes, it's different, but I'm not sure either one is getting it right yet. I think there is movement. I think there's green shoots. I think there's steps forward. I think in some areas, as we've come out of fully remote working, um, that we've actually gone backwards in others. And that really worries me. Um, and we'll get into some of the thoughts of why that is. But I think when I reflect on my career, I've sat on calls like this and I'd love to say, you know, it's all getting better and it's always a step forward and it's not. And it's how do we start to think about what is working and what is really working well, but what more do we really need to do and what absolutely needs to change to make that work? Um, so there are areas that I think are moving forward, but there's certainly areas that I think have taken a big step back. It's um if I can jump in, Lou. It's really interesting, actually. Uh, it, it, it reminds me of the old joke I kept getting told, which was, you know, God built the world in seven days because there was no user base. We have to remind ourselves that we are trying to change something that's hundreds, centuries, decades old in each of these individual industries, and we also have to work out how we 
come out of the pandemic empathetically, but with the right culture, as you say, not to where we were before, but actually where we want to go to. And, and I, I for, for folks that listen to the podcast all the time, I, I always talk about my kids, you know, 10, almost 10 and almost 13. What they want from a bank or insurer or retailer is very different to what we wanted. And I, I have always, and I maintain, if they engage insurers in the same way that we did, I think we'll have fundamentally failed. So, so almost adapting to the future for those folks that are five, six years out, if you think about the cycle of, of innovation and stuff, that are five or six years out before they actually engage us. And what we have to do to get ready for that now actually takes a whole host of change of mindset, of people, of capability. And we struggle to even do the, I don't want to say the basics, but we struggle to get where we want to get to today. I mean, I know one of the uh, the big insurers, Zurich, announced a huge digitalization program this morning. So it's, it's, it's never ending. It's never done, is it, this journey? No, and, and it's interesting because, and again, it, we'll probably get into some of this, but when I think about digital transformation, there's three aspects to it. There's the transformation itself, which is obviously very difficult, um, but it's the, probably the easier part around delivering the technology, the widgets, the components and the bits. There's the change it makes to the business model, which is actually quite tricky because sometimes you have to take a step back to move forward with the business model. So what's a longer-term play versus some of the short-term? And we've all been part of that. But the third leg, which is always the hardest one, is the cultural change that it drives. You will always get one, but is it the culture that you intended? And that's the thing that I still think we have a huge challenge. And, and, And I don't mean this to be controversial but what you're hitting into when you get into that cultural one is so many different parts of the organization whether you're a heritage or legacy organization or a fintech or a new start please don't confuse just because you're new that the culture's better because it isn't always and i've seen that i've seen exactly some of the same challenges within some of the startup and scale-up communities i have with the heritage organizations because what you're starting to hit into is If you look at heritage organisations, you're looking at people who've been enrolled for years, who've built position on, you know, experience and years and they get status, position and reward for that. And I'm not criticising that, but it is fundamentally different when you then go to somebody or we're transforming part of that business. That means it impacts you. But hang on, I'm a few years off retirement. So you're hitting at very core human behavior and actually humans don't want to change and it's really tricky but it's taken me a long long time to work through that some of those cultural challenge are not necessarily in those mid tiers they're actually in some of the big senior tiers and that makes it much more tricky and those are the things that we've got to face into but again you know looking at this always in a balanced and fair way I don't think some of the leaders coming through now tolerate that as much. I think I've tolerated some things. And I think, you know, looking really inwardly and reflecting, I think I've tolerated some elements too much. And I've walked past stuff that I maybe shouldn't have. And I'm saying that as a female leader in FS, as a gay leader in FS. And, you know, it's it's it, there's less acceptance of that. There's more... How do we face into it and how do we actually start to drive in? 
I think, Lou, you make a really good point in terms of the, the three lenses, because I think most people sort of think of it as a once and done digital transformation. And I think it has to be digital sustainability. And I think that's the hardest piece. Um, and then the other bit you, you've sort of touched on is the lots of different players. I think where people stay in their lane, it works very, very well. So if, if you're always staying in your lane, it, it works. The moment you have to step out of your lane, which happens all the time in insurance just because of all the different players and the different actors that exist, I think that's where you keep coming up against different barriers. And to your point, different people working on different incentives to different cultures. And, and you almost have to change everybody piece by piece, which is what makes it really hard. Alex, I'm interested to bring your point of view onto this. You know, as a recruiter, are we seeing a lot of outside influence coming in or people hiring within? Is, is that in, outside influence starting to change people's perceptions within the industry? Cautiously, I say yes. I, I think it's a trickle, though. Um, I think... Uh, Companies that encumber businesses are not being particularly brave about that. So, yes, we're seeing outside uh, talent come in, but we're usually seeing it for, you know, new skill sets. There's skill sets we don't have. Uh, you know, the most obvious one would be historically looking at data science and data science coming into the insurance industry. You know, we were pulling people from different places. Yeah, and, and some people were proactively being brave and, you know, they were, they were taking from businesses that had done uh, data science better, whether it be retail or whether it be sort of marketing. Um, and they were trying to bring a new perspective and specifically looking for that. I think where we've been less brave is, is bringing those core, maybe, maybe, for example, leadership people in and saying, could we bring a leader in from outside the insurance industry, which, which leads in a different direction? And I think to Lou's point about you know, leadership um, and the ability to change and, and drive change, I've had lots of these great conversations about culture and change. And one of the things that kept going back was sort of pushing it to the C-suite and saying, well, the C-suite need to drive change. And I said, but the C-suite have responsibilities and objectives set for them by either investors or by you know the public you know the public of a public traded company and and it's not like a free license to do whatever you want so um i think there is sort of restrictions on how brave people can be um reflecting on the insure tech industry which i see a lot more we do see more broader skill sets coming in but that is you know, they are bringing in that insurance skill. They're needing that. But they, they quite often a lot of the insurance businesses see insurance as this kind of homogenous knowledge set saying, right, well, this is our insurance person. Um, <laughs> and they might come from claims or underwriting or so they're, they're sort of bringing that kind of insurance knowledge. And, and they've been much more broad. But then those businesses are essentially a lot of those are software businesses that happen to operate in insurance. But what I find interesting is now we're seeing maturity in the insure tech market. We're seeing people want to stay. So they've been maybe a SaaS professional. They've worked in different software businesses. They're now working in the insurance industry. And what I'm finding interesting is a lot of those people having conversations with people like me and saying, I really like the industry. I want to stay. Find me another insure tech to work in or can I go and work for an insurer in a sort of innovation type function? And I think that's incredibly positive. I got a couple of points on that, actually. I was just writing down as you, as you were saying that, Alex, the... Bringing people in from outside has always been the let's go hire a Googler that then went to let's go hire a let's let's go hire a, someone from Ping An. You just look at Ericsson Chan from um, Ping An, who's now at Zurich and doing doing a great job over there. Um, it's always one thing, and, and the same thing about data science and, and those roles that we haven't got that we desperately need inside insurance. But it, but the other thing for culture on me is how do we establish the leaders? 
that create the vision that's going to say, this is an exciting place to work. Sarah used to say all the time about insurance. We've got, you know, go to a, go to a school and ask them who wants to work for an insurance company versus who wants to work for Amazon, Google, or uh, a big tech company out there. And it's very difficult sometimes to try and compete with um, the things that appear shinier or sexier or, or something like that. And I think the message about selling our industry and the fact that we are such a pinnacle core of what society does, as in nothing moves without it, back to things like purpose-led, and then finding the leaders that are passionate to say, here's what we're going to do to change the industry and enable you to have a safe, cool, exciting, mobile um, mobility of, of the future, style of our future, and you can be part of that journey is also really important. So I don't, I think, that, Lou, you made the point about leaders. I'm not sure it's just on leaders. I often find there's a, there's, there's a, there's a level of, the bit in the middle that gets stuck sometimes because to the points made a minute ago, we have our objectives. We're all over busy, overworked. We're dealing with everything else with, you know, coming back out of the pandemic and all those other good things at the same time. And it's always a case of how do we prioritise? And it goes back to good old James Clear on the make the machine work first and then the outcomes will follow. And I think that's that's one of the things I think culture is, sh- sh- or we should look to when we look at culture and how we go build the mechanisms for it to thrive and work correctly rather than going, hey, let's go and get a person over here who's exciting. And, I agree. Yeah. I, and just on that, Nigel, I, I I totally agree with you. And when I say leaders, I mean future leaders, not necessarily there now. Because actually, yeah. I think that swell at the moment within an organisation is actually going to be less tolerant of this. So therefore, it is going to push hard. And let's face it, we've seen it and we've probably all done it. You, you can't recruit a single person and put them in a senior leadership position and expect suddenly for it to change. I mean, and Alex, you'll probably know this better than me, but how many briefs do you get where we go, oh, we want somebody different? And then you put somebody different in somebody and they go, oh, not that different. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or you go through or you go through all of the pain of recruiting somebody different and then when you get them in, you think, oh, God, that's really different. Let's make them all the same again. So it's like impossible, and and that process doesn't work. And that's why, and I agree with you, Nigel, I think now is the time to have, and I think whether you're an insurtech, legacy, apartment, whatever, is create that culture that you really want to create and attract that same reaction to some of the brands and people that you've articulated. Because, yeah, I mean, I've been the one leader that they've recruited that's different, and it's really hard. And you come in and people are like, whoa, great, you know, and then the hard bit hits. And, and, and Lou, just just to explore that, what, what do you think would have made a difference? Obviously, you came in and you, you were trying to shake things up and do things differently. Do you think there was one thing, looking back on reflection, that could have could have helped you or made it different, uh, whether it was support or uh, other people coming in? What do you think could have changed changed it or, or made it happen quicker? I don't think it's changed or I don't think it's a changed it. I don't because, listen, you recruit different people at different points in time because you want to create a change. And that's and everybody does it. And it's, it'll be the same as the scale-up community as we're speaking right now, you know, how do you actually attract some of the people from heritage organisations who have fantastic knowledge knowledge around risk, compliance, audit, controls, as people scale? There'll be different requirements. And there's a great opportunity to bring in some of that experience into 
the broader scale of community. So I don't, I don't think it's about what would have changed it because I don't, listen, you go into any role and to any company and you kind of just want to hope that, you know, you make it or change a little corner of it or make it that little bit better when you leave. And I, I, I went in there and I, into all of my roles, I'm not talking about one specifically, I'm talking about all of my roles and I feel like I did what I could to move it forward and change it for the better and leave the little corner of it hopefully a bit better. I always get it right, but you, you kind of drive it forward. I think the very thing that Nigel talked about is that process is hard and it cannot be done alone without other things. So you have to have a good support mechanism in place. You have to have that swell from around the organisation. It's not just the leadership challenge. It's actually a much broader challenge and start to create that culture that drives that energy and passion. And, you know, but you've also got the pressures of a business model change, a transformation change. And those three legs that I articulated are all hard to do. And you're doing them all at the same time. And at the same time, you're changing people's roles that may have been in them for a long time. So I think they're, it, it, it's, it's never not going to be difficult, if I can say that. But I think for me, the biggest thing that needs to be in place is that continued support. And I emphasise continued because these things don't change overnight. And the thing that has to happen is how do you avoid that, okay, what's the next shiny new thing before this thing is actually finished or taken hold or a tipping point? And I've, and I've been lucky to be part of that as well as it being a longer tail. Yeah, and, I, and, I, and I've seen multiple examples of where organizations have tried to go big bang and then after three to six months it's got too hard and, and they've just simply pulled out and reverted back to I guess to the culture they had before because because everybody goes back to the safety of what they know I like your point it's about continuous development and you know I've always seen the best ways rather than big bang is that <laughs> it sounds a horrible analogy but almost like a virus you, you you start small and then it spreads and I think that's almost the only way to do it but you you have to have as you say, those passionate people, those sponsors, those drivers at any level of the organisation to start pushing that through. I think about um, the innovation teams. I think that I think that's such a good example of where this kind of leadership thing plays itself out. If we, if we look at what, what's been happening, is that we'd have like an innovation person, and there's like this solo person that's supposed to be in the in, in these big legacy insurers and supposed to drive change, but without budget without authority, without top-down support, nothing is going to happen. And certainly they can't do it on their own. And But we've seen the evolution of those teams where that's coincided with the growth of insure tech. They are building more partnerships. They are getting budget. Some of them, for example, if you're looking at underwriting organizations, have their own uh, capacity to deploy. So they can test new products in areas without kind of it going on the balance sheet of a you know, senior underwriting figure who says, well, I'm not having that impact on my bonus. So but if you look at it from uh, the, the, sort of in the past, where you've got one person go, this person is now responsible for innovation for this entire you know organisation, you know they're, they're they're shouting in a crowd. It's it's, it's never going to drive change. Um, and following on uh, you know, separately, uh, something I kept thinking about when we were talking about, you know, Nigel was saying about we need to do essentially do a better job at attracting people into the industry and telling them you know the, the good that we do and the mobility. I always think about recruitment and recruitment of people as as it's a customer journey. Like we always talk about customer journeys. What does the customer want? When people don't work for you and you want them to work for you, 
they are potential customers and you are selling the proposition of working for your industry or organization. And not enough is done about that. Because if you look at the customer coming through today, the talent pool that are going to join in five years' time, they want employment mobility. So if we still live in a world where you join as a claims person by default or accident because that's the job you get offered, we still live in an industry where you're kind of you're in claims then. That's, that's, that's what you do now. And that was why I left the industry. I worked in claims and I wanted to move across and they said no. And I said, right, I'm going to leave. Um, I'm not saying that was a great loss to the industry. But I'm <laughs> saying that, you know, the, the, the mobility wasn't there. So I think I know that's very difficult to do, but we need to look at what do the people that are going to join in five years time want. And we need to build culture and businesses that reflect that. It's a good segue if we, if we jump into the, into the next section as well. I mean, it's, we talk about culture being incredibly hard to change and it's not the answer of, hey, let's put Lou in the corner on a pedestal and shout at everyone as they walk through the front door or they, they join the next Zoom. It's not going to work. As much as we love you, Lou, it's not going to work if they did it for me or anyone. It just doesn't work that way. And I think the pandemic has given us a great opportunity to decide on what it is we want to be. And I've seen lots of mantras or publications from startups and fintechs and insurtechs over the last couple of weeks and months saying, here's how we're going to operate. I think GetSafe did one uh, last week online where they said, here's what we're going to do now to support our employees. Many pets have done the same as Stephen and Charlotte and Oki have been on the show quite a few times. Uh, and they've talked about how they're changing how they operate and how they're going to work to enable the new flexibility that people have become used to or realize they don't, they don't want to spend an hour and a half commute or 30 minute commute or whatever the thing that they, they had previously that was seen as the norm and that's been taken away over the last two years. Um, but how they're going to operate and work going forward. And I think that's really interesting. And maybe it's just, maybe it's just um, cyclical. You know, the, the very first office environment came around out in, out in the UK God knows how many years ago, I think it was the Royal Navy, if I remember correctly from the story that I read, the US then revolutionized it with the cubicle. And I say that semi-laughing, sitting in a broom cupboard. It's miserable. I, I, I'm one of these individuals that loves people. I need to be around people. I need to be in an office environment. I love my commute to work. I know I'm an oddball on many senses. No one needs to agree with that in any way. Um, I think where, where I'm going with this though, I guess, and, and maybe one for you, for, for you, Lou, given that you've worked in the Lloyd's underwriting uh, room and you've seen how tradition, which I also love, by the way, I think it's an amazing tradition that we shouldn't um, change too much, but equally we should be able to adapt it so that we can do and or in the same way that we would in any other industry. How, how are you seeing, I guess, the, the change to hybrid or multi, in, in the e-commerce in, in e world, I guess we call it, you know, multi, well, I forgot the name. I forgot the name of it now. We call it multi-channel communications or anything else. Omni communications. What's our what's our omni culture of the future? I guess. I, I don't think you're odd at all. By the way, in terms of <laughs> in terms of can we like, record that bit? No. In terms of like in a community. I mean, let's be really clear, and I'll take all of your points. But in terms of how we used to work, and I think pre and post pandemic as phrases is terrible. By the way, because actually how we worked. But let's use it because I can't think of another one at the moment. Because <laughs> as I said, I landed from a holiday at two AM in the morning, so like it's been a long day. That wasn't that wasn't a good way of working anyway. Five days in the week and us all sat behind our laptops. That wasn't good, uh, or that wasn't the right. Was that the right way to work in an office and with teams? I don't know. I don't think so. And then how we worked through the pandemic when we were remote working. 
that that wasn't right or helpful either in some way. So it's kind of like, how do you create a balance that enables people to do all the things that you've just talked about, which is, you know, I, I don't want to commute. So it looks like this or I commute outside of one, you know, one hour versus another. And it's how do you create trust with your employees? And I think the big shift I've seen in the last couple of years is that relationship that an employee has with their employer has changed significantly. They demand different things. They demand some of that points that you've talked about is about how do you create the environment where you can actually thrive and you can get the best of me, whether that's the tools for my job, whether that's the hours I'm in the office or the hours I'm at home, or being able to do the things I still love from where I want to do them and trusting me to do the job that you've actually recruited me to do. But they also demand to have a voice and have views on purpose, social purpose. It's no longer okay to sit on the fence. Even if I don't necessarily agree, that's a choice I make, but at least there's a clarity about purpose and there's a voice. So I think that entire relationship an employee has with their employer has changed significantly. And that, for me, is going to be critical as we move forward in attracting and retaining the best talent. And we'll start to see who's doing that brilliantly. And there are people doing it brilliantly and who's going to actually shift and how's that going to change. I live in fear at the first thing that you said. And it is the very thing that doesn't work is when you do recruit, and Alex will have, again, a better view on this. When you do start to say we're we're changing the way we are, this is the transformation we're on, this is our strategy, this is our vision and purpose. And by the way, here's whoever who's going to help us do that. And then they're on every single podcast, they're on every single poster, they're on every single thing in the organisation and you're set up to fail. It just doesn't work because you can't deliver on anybody's expectation. You can't deliver on because you can't change everything that quickly and you can't satisfy everybody's expectation of you and it's a much slower burn about how do you actually put that structure and support around individuals so i think when i think about then coming back to your last point about the underwriting room i love the underwriting room and there's so many things about it that if you think about Business models get disrupted by ecosystems and there is a ready-made ecosystem there. There's a relationship model. There's relationships built on trust. There's tons of stuff in there that you actually want to keep because it will ensure our industry. And this industry I now love, by the way. And I remember speaking to you, Nigel, when I came in and I thought, oh, God, this is really weird. And I love it. (laughs) And actually, it is fundamental to you know, from a social and economic perspective. And I want to be part of how do we continue to make this industry fabulous? Because it is, and there's some brilliant people here. And how do you keep the best of that? There's also parts of the industry that aren't good. And how do we actually move forward with the things that are brilliant? Totally. Again, it's the same as any industry. But I think there is a... I think there is a recognition... I... I haven't quite reconciled this in my head, so I'm being really open about this. I hear all the time that people don't want to change in insurance because they like it the old way because they've seen so many generations. I'm not sure that's the issue. Uh, Of course, there's those people, but there's those people in any industry, but we always talk about that. 
But what I do see is a bunch of people who've been in this industry for so long who do want to make it different, who do want to make it better in startups, in scale-ups and in heritage organisations. And you can see them pushing hard at that. So I think that, but how do you keep hold of some of those things? Because it is a relationship business. It is a business that, you know, has generated those long tail relationships. But the digital experiences or the data that it uses, it, it just doesn't work. And it's how do you ensure that you keep that relationship, that ecosystem, but backed by stuff that is, faster, better, cheaper, more immediate, more transparent, and delivers a better outcome from the end customer at the end of the day. And intuitively, it's difficult to argue with. I'm I'm with you there entirely. And actually, uh, Alex, one for you, if I may. And, And I heard this years ago about someone that was going for a job and turned the down based on the environment that they were going to be working in beforehand. If I play on the on the pomp and ceremony of the Lloyd's Underwriter Room that we've all agreed we love and is is, is part of our history and part of our future. Um, I joined Google as an example because I was amazed, A, with the culture. Everyone talks to me about how do you innovate like Google and we're still figuring it out and sharing how that works for clients going forward. But one of the things I love about Google is you, you go, everyone's, everyone's familiar with the Google offices or campuses. I've shared a video recently of one we've opened up in the Bay Area that is just unbelievable. How much do you, in the in the recruitment world, how much do you see that coming up as a, hey, when we do go to collaborate, we've got the right spaces to go into or the right environments to go work in? And that's probably a bad thing to say, sitting inside a brim cupboard. But if I walked outside, <laughs> you'd see something very, very different. So h- how much does the physical environment start to impact people from a recruitment perspective, point one? And point two, I guess, really quickly, we're all lucky enough to be, I'm going to say mature in our career without saying we're all old other than John, but we're mature in our career. We've, we've learned our trade. We know what we're doing. We're always learning. But if you're one of my kids or one of your kids or nephews or nieces, how do you learn your trade if you're going to do the whole thing on Zoom or meet or whatever it's going to be? So, so yeah, would love your perspective on that and what people talk to you about when they're looking at changing roles. It's a great, well, two separate great questions. I think um, the second one, I'm less confident about how to answer, but I'll, I'll, I'll think of it while I'm talking about this first one because I feel a bit more confident. Yes, it comes up a lot. And and what's interesting is, is is looking at my career as a barometer of how that's changed. The conversations we used to have were, yeah, because the problem before with insurance was realistic. It was very difficult to change role. And if you changed role, it, it you could take a small sideways deviation, but you couldn't really deviate. I mean, it, I mean you used to have conversations about if someone's senior broker in a particular class of business, can they actually be an underwriter in that particular class of business? And you think about how crazy that really sounds. It's like you're an expert in one class of business. You've kind of, your role changes. And I know you have to look at it from a different perspective, but it's it's crazy to me that that's such a kind of hot topic. Um, now we're kind of, we've got new and sort of innovative businesses um, that are kind of doing different things. And, and so that's a lot of what draws people. So there's a huge attraction to the insure tech industry. And, and, and to Lou's point, as Lou was saying, I, I agree with that. I think people do want change. I think people would support change. And I can tell that just by the amount of interest that I get all the time from people from legacy or heritage businesses that are going to me, I want to work in insure tech because I want to see what change is. I want to be at the forefront of change. And they don't think they can do it internally. But if we gave them the option to, they would. Um, I think particularly conversations around particularly conversations I have with women 
they're reluctant to join businesses that are not reflective in the with with women in the senior leadership. That's a that's a huge thing that comes up. But it's a it's a much more frequent part of the conversations now about how will I be working, what will I be doing, how, how you know hours do they expect me to come in, how flexible are they, you know people want roles that are built for them that are going to work for them because really we should take the work they're going to do as a given is what I think. You know, if I'm hiring someone to do a job, I expect them to do that job. It's back to Lee's point on trust, right? I mean, if you trust the people to get the job done, you don't mind or you shouldn't mind and you actually don't even worry what they're up to. If they're disappearing to do a school run or a shop or sort out granny or whatever it might be, as long as they're doing the right things. No, no one complains that I work on a Saturday morning or a Sunday evening or measures it the fact, hey, why are you doing that there this time? You're right. It, it That comes down to trust. But that starts to change the culture. And I, th I think that's what becomes attractive to the industry is where people have that flexibility to fit their lives around what they do. But it also it means that then they feel comfortable in doing the job that they're doing. And I think you're right. I mean, culture is hard to change, but it has to be based on trust. Well, the first principle of insurance is utmost good faith, right? That's, yeah. that's, that's <laughs> yeah. tenant one. So, you know, I think we need to start applying that to the people that we hire. And, and uh, the good thing about remote working and the more remote working is kind of commonplace. I think you have to start there. Uh, the first person I hired into my business, my marketing manager, Sophie, I hired her and she was in Barcelona and she was a recent graduate. She'd, she'd, she'd never done it before and I originally hired her to write content. And, and, you know, I think the lead time to get her up to speed was longer. I had to let her fall over and, and, and get it wrong and I had to be more tolerant of that. But I also had to have faith that I just hired the right person. And and I, and I don't know what – there's not one answer to how do you onboard and learn. And I do think that's that's where the sort of problem lies. I mean, I think I'm going to be building an office environment. But, I, you know, I've got this attitude that's going to be like a clubhouse. You know, you're going to go in because we want to build a sense of camaraderie. But it's not going to be enforced – Five days a week, nine to five. Or you set you you set the parameters. So you say, hey, we're going to be in every second Wednesday, and it's going to be happy hour, lunch, whatever it's going to be. And the stories I've heard from the clients I've seen, physically and virtually, about what they're doing to get clients back, whether it's food, back to Google, I'm always eating. It feels like, in fact, nothing's changed in my life. Or whether it's events, there's yoga here. We had a book club yesterday. That went on. I joined a book club for the first time ever. Um, there's some really really cool things that just actually bring you together with people and that was a as an example that was a hybrid book club some people were in the office some people were, 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 were remote so there's loads of things that we're doing we didn't answer the question about the future but maybe that was one for a different show because i think i gen i genuinely worry about that i i learned my craft the hard way by getting all the crappy jobs and carrying someone's bag and everything else and i worry for the next generation about how they go i agree uh, Cut their teeth in that. Oh, we, we've, got, we've, got, we've, we've got the future is the next section, Nigel, so we might be able to tackle some of this in, uh, in the final section. Fantastic. In that case, let's just take a quick break and back in a minute. So we're going to go out on a limb here and assume that you're enjoying this podcast. We're also going to assume that, like us, you're a fintech nerd and that our podcasts, live events, video series and documentaries keep you tapped into everything that's happening across fintech and connected to the fintech community. So if you're interested in creating content that informs and entertains, then you should definitely chat to our media team and get in touch on sponsors at 11fs.com. Welcome back. Let's get on with the show. So how we plan for the future, as we discussed at the end of the last section. Now it's time for us to cover the future. So 
I'll start with you, Alex. Um, how do you think we make the insurance industry more attractive to employees? Um, it's all about listening. You know, taking it back to that point of customer journeys. You know, we talk to our potential customers all the time uh, when we're sort of selling, we're trying to look to sell to them. Um, and one of the things, I, I was at ITI in, in New York a few weeks back and I, I spoke to a brilliant business, uh, BRZ, um, CEO whose name absolutely escapes me, so, which I'd have to insert that later. But, I, you know, he, he wanted some time in my diary. We were, we were talking about his business. Now, BRZ is a um, you know, traditional insurance offering, but it's to Latinx community in the US. And it's like 70 million people that are, you know, identified as Latinx in, in in, in the US. And he said really simplistic things like the language of the policy documentation is in Spanish. Uh, uh, the call centers are in Spanish speaking countries and they use Latinx looking people on their marketing. And he said the uptake is on people who've never bought insurance because it reflects like as them. And I think that's what we've got to look at is it, it, we need to be reflecting the future that we want. And, and that can be as simple as, as choosing our images correctly on our website. It, it can be use the right language on our, on our, you know, our job adverts and our, our job specifications. Um, but it's about listening. It, it, it's getting out there and saying, well, what, are the, what is the future of the workforce we need? What do they want? And, and how do we do that? Um, I was just just saying in the break briefly about um, there's some wonderful things happening and, and I was really lucky to be in, invited by Rebecca Boston of Inset London to a Making Change in Insurance dinner. Uh, and it was sort of old-fashioned debate about the use of role models and, and really sort of tackling um, whether role models are positive. It was a real diverse room, but lots of people that were quite new to the industry and it was fascinating. And, I, and, I, and I, I'd been beating up on the industry. I'd been a bit negative. And then seeing all these people that are sort of relatively new to the insurance industry, you know, I came away with a, a huge amount of hope because they won't tolerate some of the things that we've probably been in the room for in the past if you've been in insurance long enough and, and you've let slide. Um, so, yeah, I think listening and, and, and then giving a voice to the people that won't tolerate it and, and enforce change, that will make it more attractive to people in the future. I think I think there's something, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't agree more, and I think there's something, I think there's a change in perception about doing the right thing now. I think always, I mean, I remember looking back to when, you know, people used to put digital platforms in big systems and we would migrate customers over. And there was always the phrase, don't wake them up, because they were profitable, long-standing customers. And, you know, with that kind of attitude, I mean, no wonder it garnished a bad reputation. Um, and, and people didn't really want to work, work in that space. And I think what we've seen over the last few years, and, and Nigel, you mentioned it with many pets and many others, is actually putting customers right at the forefront and people are starting to care. And I think there's something about a, a great PR exercise. And Lou, you mentioned it. I mean, I'm going to have this as our headline, Lou Smith loves insurance. Um, but I think there is something about it's an exciting place. And Nigel, to your point about if we're selling insurance in five years time, the way we sell it today, we, we've kind of failed because for as an innovator, for a chance to change something, you know, how do you keep all those great things like the trading floor of the past, but actually how do we really transform or change an industry that has operated for hundreds of years in the same way? And I think that is a really, really exciting challenge for the people within the industry or people who want to come into it. And I think that could drive an influx of, yeah. uh, of people to I, bring new ideas. I think there's two things for me here, one positive and one just as a let's not forget what we're here to do. Let me start with that one. One of my oldest friends um, always reminds me, whether it's personal or work, you can't please everyone all the time. 
Because if we're going to do that, and we're a multi-hundred-thousand-person company across the world, at some point we will we'll miss someone out, we'll upset someone, we won't do it intentionally. And it, that's also hard. That's also hard when you have all the individual communities that either associate or don't associate with certain groups that have been set up. Um, I think we just need to be clear on that. And that almost goes back to the, what are the guiding principles? Why are we here? What are we here to do around serving our customers, serving our employees? What's the order of priority? But ultimately, no matter what, unfortunately, you're not going to keep everyone happy all the time. And that and that's okay too. I think that that's genuinely okay that we can't um, deal with every single individual piece. In, in the ideal world, you might, but ultimately, if the goal is profitability, customer satisfaction, um, protecting people, all those different, different things, we're, we're not we're not actually going to get there. The positive one for me though is back to storytelling and the narrative of you know I've been on this mission to make insurance lovable, and we'll go grab people one by one and tell them why it's exciting. Um, and I'm choosing that as a story to tell because people don't genuinely love it. They don't understand it. They don't associate with it. We don't engage with it regularly unless you're an insurance professional. It's the same old questions, you know, and, and Alex will know this way better than anyone else. Find someone that works in insurance is because they fell into it rather than actually came out of uh, university or college with a degree in it. I've actually found that to be less true in the States because lots of people have done risk management degrees or courses and stuff like that. So actually there's quite a few more pockets of people that were excited by risk or otherwise, or they followed a family tradition where their mother or father was in the industry or a broker or agent or elsewhere. So that's slightly different out here, I would say. But I think the, the one thing we have to start getting on board with is just being super clear on our narrative, which is, I think, one thing the likes of the insurtechs, whether it's Hippo, Lemonade, you know, uh, all these new startups um, have done a really, really good job on branding. And yes, you could argue that they're not in the same place we wanted to be financially or whatever else, but they've started, they've had a go, and the foundations are built and the markets will turn and the tides will change, but they've started. I was just going to say, I, I think that's a really important point, the branding piece. Um, you know, Lemonade's done a phenomenal job of branding and, and, and Lemonade's obviously, you know, financially, as you say, not, not what they want to be, but but the branding piece is undeniably brilliant in, in, in the way that they've done it. And and I, I'm sort of going to say something quite contrary to what you guys have been saying about the Lloyds building. I was literally having this conversation over coffee earlier. I sat outside Lloyds and I was going, well, why can't we talk about whether we need that or not? And I think everything needs to be questioned. And I'm not saying you get rid of all the traditions because that's that's I don't think that's the right thing to do. But I do think you have to question why is it important? What does it serve? Um, because if it, if it impacts the ability to attract people, because we, we're too hit up on tradition and guys in red jackets and you know and, and buildings that have sort of significant importance, then then we do risk not delivering on that kind of exciting new brand. I, 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 I wouldn't go that far, by the way. I know I'm not advocating we get rid of the lights building, but... It has been know. published. It, it, there's, there's always... Lou will tell us, it's always been talked about. But in the meantime, John, can you provide some soap to wash his mouth out, please? <laughs> yeah. But I think it's less about... So, Alex, I don't disagree with you about the physical element of it, but there's actually the bit that I think is core, and so my point was slightly different about that ecosystem that it's generated... And I do actually think that's quite critical, which is very different to the building or the red jackets or whatever. I've said there are some things that you can argue, and John has talked about this actually, there's some elements of Lloyd's and its history that aren't good. And there's some traditions that you would arguably say, does it actually 
prohibit or actually help us move forward. But the thing that I've stood, I mean, I was six weeks in Lloyds before I actually went into the pandemic, you know, then we went, we were fully remote. But there are core elements to it that having worked in a retail environment for retail banking environment for 20 odd years that we would have loved to have had some of that element of the ecosystem. So I think, but I do think your point of all of these things have to be questioned and we have to look at uninhibited problem solving rather than the boundaries that we necessarily put on ourselves when we go through this as we move forward. Agreed. I'm going to, um, we're, we're coming into the final part of the show, so I'm going to do a quick whip round. Um, I'm going to start, I'll start with you, Nigel, uh, although try and keep it, keep it brief. I know you like to Hosh. talk. Um, what are you hoping to see in the next two to three years? Oh, blimey. Two to three. The horizons, I think the horizon one, two and three are interesting. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to see the culture change. It has to. We're going to spend a bit of time coming out of the pandemic. Sorry, Lou, for the term, um, on digital indigestion. Just playing catch up on, on what should have happened over the last couple of years. But we've we've got to fundamentally rethink the how we're going to do this. We know what we want to do. We've seen all the cool technology that's coming, whether it's IoT and sensors and all that sort of stuff. We get it. We you know we know we're drowning in data in most places. We've got to change the story and bring more people that are bringing the right energy for change balanced with what we do day in, day out. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good point. I'm, I'm going to jump in and I'm going I'm to say my two to three because I'm going to build off the back of that. Um, I think you're right. I mean, I, I've seen multiple transformations to your point where the techs come in, they've got the shiny new toys, they've got the new data. But actually, it goes back to the very, very first point we were talking about, which is digital transformation versus actually digital sustainability. How do you take all those bits and pieces and those shiny new toys and create a culture, an organization that allows you to maximize it and get the best use of it? And I think that's what we're going to see over the next two to three years is organizations adjust themselves to actually maximizing what they've invested in to date uh, and what they've done. I'm going to go over to you, Alex. Predictions are hard, but hopes would, would be another way of looking at it. I, I, I think building really on your point, I, I want to see the insurance industry as a whole be better at bringing in outside um, talent, but doing it consciously and purposely, you know, and leaving space within the, the industry to, to allow those people to bring in change and, and, and not on an individual basis, as we've said, you know, bringing them as solo, but bringing in those experts that have worked on all of these different technologies that we know are going to improve the industry, really embracing that uh, and trying to drive cultural change. And, and whether it be things like uh, employment liability, uh, mobility within the uh, the pe- people that are already in, in the existing industry. And we don't talk about that enough, actually. We're, we're very good at talking about talent coming into the industry. We've got some great talented people in here. We, we just need to give them a voice and a platform to, to drive change. Um, I want to see more of that coming in and, and and I think that starts at a leadership level. Um I was talking about HR as a as a as a as a rule. HR's a terrible term, human resource management. If we talk about sort of talent and people, individual co- coaching. Uh we we we're gonna get to that kind of level where we need to be listening to people on an individual basis. I, I know that puts a huge responsibility on the business, but I want to see leaders with kind of more diverse backgrounds so they can bring more ideas to their individual teams. And finally, uh, Lou, to close out our show today. Um, I don't disagree with anything that's been said. I, just a couple of things. I think what we will see is, and it, it's probably a build on your point, is around, I actually think the insurance, um, I'm seeing some companies will actually get 
that transformation, business model and culture triangulated. And let's be honest, we never got that right fully in the retail banks. And that's why we see Chase UK waltz into the UK market, you know, and take some significant share while people were sort of watching a little bit. Um, But I think we will see that triangulation. I also think we'll start to see some of the entrepreneurs, the scale-ups, the insurtechs, the startups, they talk about their culture and their organisation in 30 seconds, that if you could get that spread across the industry and a lot more, you'd change the culture overnight. If you could feel that entrepreneur, that mindset, and I'm seeing it as a groundswell within some of the heritage organisations, but how do we start to drive some of that out? I think we'll see that. I think Alex made a lovely point, and I think it's absolutely critical. We've got to start reflecting the future that we want in everything that we communicate out. So that will challenge some of the way in which we communicate about the brand, the narrative, the storytelling, and all of those things that we see and use. But there are some great examples of where that's been done with big organisations that have changed that. I mean, SBI changed its brand and actually engaged a whole new set of people. So there are some brilliant examples that we can hook on to. I've got a funny feeling the insurance industry will take some of those, learn a little bit quicker and try and build them into that triangulation that I talked about. My one last point and ask is, uh, and we're in Pride Month, so I'm allowed to say it is, don't just be rainbows and supportives and the allies in June. But, and it goes for everything, where you see something, and I think we'll get there, there isn't right. Be in the fight, don't just be an active ally on things for anything that is different or unique or wrong or whatever. It's really critical. And I and I see or I hope this industry now will start to challenge that more actively moving forward. And I know some of you guys, I know Nigel is absolutely aligned on this around, you know, if there isn't a diverse panel, then don't go on it. You know, it's about how do we make sure that we live that and drive it forward. So that's my one hope. But I genuinely think this industry will move significantly quickly over the next five years in a good way. And can I just really, really quickly, John, just just on the last point, you don't have to do this publicly either. And what I mean by that, people that know me have often had a quiet ping, not wanting to embarrass anyone, not wanting to say anything, saying, hey, congrats on just joining the board. You realise you're just another white male that's joined a board of all white males, or you've joined a panel where there's no diversity whatsoever. How about this list of 100 people plus that could join you or take your spot? And I always do it never to embarrass, never to call out, but to say, hey, just think about it. And your predecessor, Lee, used to say, you're one of them, Nigel. You're one of those dads and daughters, aren't you? I, don't, I might be, but it's taught me something and it's, it's working, I think. And, and that for me is if we can get more people challenging those. And you'd, as, as I say, sometimes it's really hard to say out loud. It really is. And I understand that. But doing nothing is not the answer. Do it quietly. Do it any way that you feel comfortable. But let's start pushing on some of those things. And I actually think you'll find people are more like, I've got it, than you think. I actually think people will be more receptive than you think. I think that's a brilliant close to today's show. And I I think we've got to move away from that's what we've always done and actually start, as you say, planning for the future that we want. 
Well, that wraps up today's discussion. I think it's been an excellent show. Uh, so thanks for all joining me. Uh, where can people find out more about you and your companies? We'll start with you, Lou. I'm active on LinkedIn. I'm trying to be more active on Twitter. Uh, so please, please, please help me on Twitter. I'd love to be more active on it. I'm not always as good. But I'll try. Ping Nigel privately for uh, how we can all use Twitter better. Going crazy in the in my new age. So yeah. <laughs> Alex, what about yourself? Well, working in the recruitment industry, I'm shamelessly uh, addicted to LinkedIn uh, and on it probably more than I would like like to be. Um, but if you want to check up on on the podcast, we're on all you know, regular podcasting platforms. And um, if you want to find out more about the recruitment stuff that we do, um, www.wearefinpro.com. Brilliant. And next to the Twitter king himself, Nigel Walsh. Well, I can't not give you Twitter today, can I? So I'm at Nigel Walsh on the Twitter, <laughs> uh, usually ranting and raving about bikes and exercise and God knows whatever else. So uh, and of course, insurance. So Nigel Walsh on Twitter. Brilliant. And finally, you can find me, uh, John Bean, uh, also on LinkedIn, also on Twitter or through our 11 Affairs website. Well, that's the end of today's show. So thanks for listening. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It helps make it better and helps others find the show. As always, if you want to join the conversation, you can find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or InsureTech Insider, or you can find us on Twitter at InsTech Insiders or email podcasts at 11FS.com. Thanks very much and goodbye. Goodbye.